What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. This week we're talking to Professor Stephen Dinham about his paper, The Worst of Both Worlds. First, a little bit about Stephen. Steve Dinham taught in government secondary schools in New South Wales before being appointed in 1989 to the University of Western Sydney, where he held a number of positions, including Head of Department of Curriculum Studies, Associate Dean, Postgrad, and Associate Professor. Since then, he's worked in University of Wollongong, been Research Director at the Teaching, Learning, and Leadership Research Program at the Australian Council of Education Research, as well as held the position of Director of Learning and Teaching and Professor of Teacher Education at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. He's also been Professor of Instructional Leadership and Associate Dean at MGSE up until 2016. He's conducted 77 funded research projects in the areas of educational leadership and change, effective pedagogy, quality teaching, student achievement, postgrad supervision, and a whole host of other topics. He's written over 350 publications and presented all over the world, which he continues to do. He's the immediate past president of the Australian College of Educators and a former chair of the ACE board. Really interestingly, Steve's also a member of the Victorian Minister for Education Expert Panel for Schools, giving advice to our education minister right here in Victoria. He's won a whole heap of prizes, one of which is the Medal of the Order of Australia for service to education research and to professional associations. It's a fascinating discussion with Steve that we have, and it touches on things like what Steve believes is the purpose of school, how he came from a working class background to being the Director of Teaching and Learning at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, as well as the main focus of his paper that we read for this uh, episode of the ERRR, which was on the tendency of Australia to take on education fads from the US and UK, even when they may not be all that evidence-based. In the ERRR this week, along with our main guests, we had a great group of passionate teachers and educators. We had Jen, Danielle, Andy, Kelvin, Catherine, Eleanor, and myself, Ollie. As we step into the ERRR, I'd just like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation on which this podcast was recorded. As always, show notes and links to our previous podcast can be found at ollielovell.com, O-L-L-I-E-L-O-V-E-L-L.com forward slash podcast, as well as links to sign up to attend the live recordings of future ERRR episodes. A big goal of the ERRR is to foster the education community here in Melbourne, uh, so we'd love to have anyone who's interested in education to come along. We're usually on once a month. So without further ado, let's jump straight in to the ERRR. Thanks for coming along, Steve. Welcome. Pleasure. The question I often like to start off with is if you meet someone at a party and they ask you what you do, what is your answer? Very interesting question. I'm, I would probably let on that I'm an academic and then hope they didn't ask any more questions. The usual thing is they say, oh, physics, or you're a professor of physics or professor of chemistry. And when you say education, they're sort of like, oh. So, but I'm quite proud of what I do. In fact, I was a teacher for a long time as well. So I, I would own up to it initially. An academic. Cool. So, I mean, we're all early career educators here. So I'm really curious as to how you, a bit about your journey, how you became an academic. What was your path? Right. Okay. Going right back, I was the first person in my family to finish high school and went into teacher's college 
at the age of 18 because I didn't know what else I wanted to do. I knew what I didn't want to do, which was work in a factory like my father had done or work for one of the corporations or work in a bank or something like that. So I also had an uncle who was a teacher who was a bit of a role model. So I decided to uh, take up a teacher scholarship. If there'd been fees and charges at that stage, I probably wouldn't have done it. So I became a high school teacher and I did that for 14 years. And um, while I was doing that, I realised I needed to do a bit more study, wanted to do a bit more study. I was a secondary social sciences, geography, economics type a teacher. And uh, so I started a BA to go with the diploma that I had. And then towards the end of my teaching career, I um, was increasingly getting involved in leadership of various sorts. I was president of a regional social science teachers association and various other bits and pieces. But I did a master's degree and I because th- I thought I'd, I wanted to know more than I did and I wanted to do something a bit more general. So I did a master's degree in what was called education administration at that time, which is sort of management type stuff. And then through chance really picked up a job at a, one of the new universities, not in 99. We had a situation where a lot of the old colleges of advanced education got turned into universities. So I just picked up a job as a social sciences lecturer and then realised I needed to do a PhD. So I did a PhD fairly quickly and uh, got involved in research. Initially, I was mainly involved with undergraduate or pre-service teacher education. Then I got involved in things like um, leadership courses and got involved in education policy and got involved in professional associations and one thing and another. So basically got on that treadmill, academic treadmill of being, you know, lecturer, senior lecturer, associate professor, professor sort of thing. Moved around a number of universities. So I started off at Western Sydney, went to New England, went to Wollongong, came down to Melbourne to be a research director at ACR and uh, then came across to Melbourne in 2011. So it's not a case of being ambitious with a plan that I had when I was 18 or 19 or 20. Or It's just one of those things you do what's in front of you. And sometimes opportunities open up and you just take that particular road. People that I trained with um, are still in the same school where they started and that might suit them. Uh, it would have driven me crazy not to have those sort of additional challenges and going to different places because I've had the opportunity to go overseas and do all sorts of stuff. So it was just a matter of, you know, I suppose, not so much being in the right place at the right time, but sort of seeing an opportunity that would be interesting and just going down that track. And then the more you're in the game, the more you get drawn into it, or you can. So get involved in things like, I just finished five years on the VIT Council, for example. Um, I was president of ACE, national president of ACE for a couple of years. And yeah, various other things that you just sort of get asked to do and, as you go through. But no great ambition, no great plan. I think the one thing that would characterise it all the way through was desire to know more um, and not just sort of sit back and say, I've worked it all out, I know everything I need to know. Mm. That, that initial decision to step out of the classroom, mm. was that one that you kind of deliberated over for quite a while? Or could you take us back to that moment a little bit? There's a bit of um, end policy in this because it's one of those things. Where, um, we used to have a situation, for example, where men had lower entry requirements into teaching than women did and then there was a differential in salary and in fact at one point there women who got married had to leave and so there was this sort of gender thing going on and then I had gone through the process of inspection which was quite a pretty full-on thing to become promoted to a head of department or whatever it was and then at the time that I did that there was a bit of a maniac education minister in New South Wales and one of the things that he came up with was an idea that there'd be a quota system um, for women as opposed to men because we had a seniority system at that stage so it wasn't promotional merit it was how long you've been waiting and obviously if you've been in the game longer you were waiting you've got further up the list and so on. 
So that quote was that like an affirmative action kind of... It was affirmative action. The effect was, for me, when I looked at it, I thought to myself, I know how many positions are coming up per year and I know how long I'm going to wait. And with, it was bad enough anyway because it was the old seniority system. It was a, they used to call it the stud book, right? So you get on this thing when you pass your inspection and you'll be on there for years and years and years and years and you gradually wake your way to the top. So there was that plus the affirmative action. I thought, I'm never going to get promoted. I'm never going to do something else. So it was only a coincidence that I happened to see this ad for this particular job. And at that stage, I just finished the master's degree. I thought, well, you know, I'll have a crack at it and I actually got the job. If I hadn't got the job, who knows what would have happened? Uh, just one of those things. Okay. So I guess a lot of about what you touched on in your article and a lot about what we're going to be talking about today is education and how education becomes influenced by certain parties and that kind of a thing. You kind of speak about your career progression as in you just fell from one job into the other. But okay. there must have been... a bit of strategy. Oh, okay. Okay. He's under-talked it a bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, in terms of applying for things and not always successfully and also completing qualifications and building a research profile and those sorts of things. So, I mean, I wasn't entirely sort of bumbling down the street and someone offered me a job. It wasn't quite that. And then what you've also got to do is, at the time, things are changing. So, you know, are you going to be part of that change or are you going to ignore it or whatever? So I got involved in things like curriculum development and professional associations and all sorts of stuff. So there was, there was some strategy in there. Great. Do you think there were any particular qualities that you had that meant that people in the education space thought, this seems like a person that would be good for this job? I think, like many people, I lack confidence in my own capacity. And one of the things we need to do in education is to talent spot and to say to somebody, you'd be really good to do this. I mean, when I get people to, do, when I ask them or convince them to do something, I normally say two things to them. You'd be really good in this job, but this job would be really good for you as well. So it's a self-development thing as well as anything else. So, um, yeah, I think mentors were important i didn't have any um in fact i had the opposite in, in one or two places i worked what's the opposite of a mentor where someone sees you as a threat yeah right. and you know doesn't make it easy for you or doesn't tell you entirely what you're supposed to know and those sorts of things so things like talent spotting mentoring and so on helping people to move into another area where they may be outside their comfort zones quite important in this this job that we're in and one of the things at the moment is that um, it's getting really difficult to get people to step up to leadership positions so i mean we had a discussion on mondays at the basto institute and it was a, a course we're devising a course for aspiring principals and one of the things that you see for a variety of reasons is that 10 20 years ago there would have been 50 applicants for a job for a principal and now you might get two or three and in some cases those people aren't suitable what we're also seeing which is very relevant to all you guys is that people who are younger are actually leapfrogging more experienced members of staff because they've got the drive and the ideas and maybe the more recent training and still got a bit of energy and so on. Um, so that sets up an interesting dynamic where you as a relatively inexperienced person steps into a leadership role working with people who might be 20 years older than you who are sort of stale and maybe, you know, they'll just wait for you to go away sort of thing. Um, so... On the one hand, there's enormous opportunities now for leadership, but on the other hand, it's difficult to get some people to do that. And partly it's things like workload and status and things of that nature. It, you know, it's, it's a variety of reasons why. But it, for those people who are interested in, in leadership, there's probably never been a better time, in actual fact. And leadership doesn't mean you having a position and having status and prestige. It means you've got the chance to influence things. You've got you know, the chance to get involved and have your hands on the levers, as Paul Keating would say. Uh, to some degree, to actually shape things that are happening. Right. Lots of ears around the table 
keenly listening. <laughs> <laughs> good, thanks, Steve. We might circle back to that, but I think we, it might be a good time to kind of dive into bit of info about the article. So the article you nominated for, for this ERRR episode was the worst of both worlds, mm-hmm. essentially about the privatisation of education. We've all read it around the table and we've got some questions, but I thought you might just like to give listeners a little bit of a rundown of some of the key points from the article. Okay, I've been sort of watching the situation uh, in Australia and elsewhere for a while. One of the big um, stimulus for this, I suppose, is PISA, which started in 2000, and some of the other international testing like TIMS and PEARLS and so on. And it's, it's interesting to me that we have been fairly slavishly, and maybe it goes back to the old colonial days, copying the US and the UK in terms of some of the things that they're doing in, in their education systems. And some of this is ideological, some of it's for commercial advantage. Um, you know, there are a variety of reasons why they're doing these things, but in actual fact, when you look at things like PISA and Pearls and Tim's, we do better on the whole than the US and the UK. Why should we be copying them? I was concerned uh, in, in the Australian situation to see us doing a lot of things that not only in some cases there's no research evidence to suggest these things work, but in actual fact there is research evidence to say they do harm. Some quick examples, sorry. A quick example, uh, school autonomy. School autonomy is, is tied up in the notion of the free market. If you give people more freedom, they'll be more innovative and you'll see competition and overall the standard of education performance will improve. Now what we know from PISA data is that there's no real relationship between the amount of autonomy that schools are given and student performance overall. But there are some things you can finesse it a little bit. For example, where schools are given more control over how they organise their curriculum and their resources and so forth. And there's countervailing accountability through things like public examinations and, and that sort of stuff. There's a slight benefit to be gained from more autonomy. But on the other hand, where schools have more autonomy, but they haven't got any accountability, their performance is worse. So the thing about autonomy is it's, it's tied up in this notion that free market, ideology, competition, brings out the best, you know, expose education systems. And, and part of what's behind this, there's been a, a consistent view, that, a myth view, uh, that edu- public education has failed and it's not performing, not delivering, and the solution is to bring in people from outside, to bring in corporate ideas, to deregulate, to bring in the free market, to let people come in and, and so on and so forth. I, th- I mentioned Berliner's stuff back to, back to um, you know, the 70s and so on. The thing about that is that I've observed is that it, they might start out as myths, but if you keep on saying them, they'll actually become reality. So if you keep on talking public education down, it will actually go down. Because what will happen is parents, for example, will be convinced that it's the best thing for their, them and their kids is to go to another school and you know we have dezoning in the public education system. There's something like 40% of kids in Victorian government schools aren't going to their local school. So not only are people deserting the public system for the private because they believe it's better, but they're also deserting their local public school to go to another one they think is better. So it's one of those things where over time these things can actually become reality. If, if, for example, the aspirational parents move all their kids on and you end up with public education being a rump. Now, my view on public education is a good public education system is good for everybody regardless of which school you go to. And if you start to dismantle it, which is what we've seen in some of these countries, you dismantle public education, you've replaced it with for-profit schools, you've let the big Pearsons of this world come in and and get control of things like the curriculum and testing and teacher appraisal and the resources and all those sorts of things. You sell off the public education system as we saw happen in Sweden, Chile and so forth. Um, Then, yeah, things will go down. So 
partly this is a, a warning because the other thing that was behind it from my observation anyway being involved in professional associations and so forth is that politicians had stopped listening to educators and that was partly our own fault because um in some cases, we didn't provide enough research uh, to support what we were saying. In other cases, we were very defensive. In other cases, we were doing things that were ideologically driven ourselves. I mean, there's a lot of people involved in education who are blanket anti-assessment, anti-testing, anti-this, anti-that, totally student-centred learning, etc. So partly our own fault. It's, it's seductive to ministers for education now that we've got all this public knowledge of things like PISA and Thames and NAPLAN to look for quick solutions. And these companies are salespeople. And they will knock on, every day they knock on the door of a Minister for Education or a Director General or Secretary and they say, look, we can fix this straight away. Just buy all our stuff. And it's attractive. Now, fortunately, we haven't gone down the line in England, America and so forth, but this is basically a wake-up call saying, but we are going down that way. And we're adopting practices that, as I said, not only don't they work, but in actual fact, they do harm, and they've been found not to work. So, for example, the free schools and academies in the UK, they got dreadful results. Charter schools in America, the online charter schools in America, they got dreadful results. You'll see data used very selectively to paint a certain picture, and often this gets exaggerated. So we had the situation in New York with um, Joel Klein when he was in, in charge there, and Julia Gillard was, I think, seduced by the idea that you know, you could turn around all these schools and you'd suddenly lift performance and, they, and there's a lot of dodgy data that was there to support that. And what we've found since, of course, is that much of that stuff was exaggerated, distorted and so forth. So this concentrated attack on public schools in America in particular and England uh, is being repeated in Australia and has been. People become convinced there's a crisis and lo and behold, there becomes a crisis. And I guess when that's the case, people, we naturally start looking for, for solutions and I'd, I'd like to hand over to Eleanor here because she had a question about the kind of why you kind of talked about the the UK and the US so yeah over to Eleanor. I was wondering and we sort of started talking about it before and you mentioned that it was partly ideological partly because of commercial and profit why is it that Australia follows the UK and the US why not Canada why why not I don't know and we said that it might be because it's English speaking you know an English Thing as well, but could you maybe just talk a bit more about that? Oh, I, I think there's a bit of cultural cringe. Um, I mean, obviously, there was an obvious link with the UK because that's where you know, our laws and processes and everything else came from. But America being the superpower of the free world, as it was, maybe still is, there's a natural tendency to look towards uh, America and the UK. And I think often we doubt ourselves. Um, you know, a lot of the Australian educational research, New Zealand educational research and so on is world class, um, but because it comes from here, it tends to get neglected, but we'll look what somebody else has done in America. So there's a bit of cultural cringe going on. And um, these people are also very persuasive as well. So the whole Teach4 movement, for example, is very persuasive. The, um, the big companies are based in England and America. The biggest publishers in the world right now are education publishers. They've been vacuuming up, siphoning up content, smaller publishers. I mean, they control now all the educational journals. The educational journals used to be run out of universities and by professional associations, and they were largely non-profit, and people would you know, get their subscription and they would get a hard copy of the journal, or their library would get one, and they would go there and you would have to sit there and, and read the thing in the library because it was on reserve. Now, the whole thing has flipped because what's happened now is these publishers have, have vacuumed up all these journals, but what they're also doing is they're now selling 
online access to them and they charge you to download papers and they charge you a large amount of money but also they charge you to quote from each from these journals so i mean the recent book that i did um, because i was quoting because in a textbook you need to various um, other writers and 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 so forth the royalties i i had to pay it was seven and a half thousand dollars so what's happening now is they've got this nice little thing it's a bit like when you go overseas with your mobile phone and you know the the, the telcos charge each other well what happens now is that these education journals are now all being taken over and the education publishers have been taken over by these big big corporations and what they do is they'll charge each other um, to quote and, and to get access and, and all of those sorts of things. And it doesn't go to the writer, it goes to the, the owner of the copyright, which is the publisher. So why UK and US? Those sorts of reasons. You know, we tend to copy them uh, in, in pretty much everything. We get their TV shows, you know, we, we follow their, their fads and fashions. And these are, a lot of these things are fads and fashions. Just another fashion. The other thing that I was sort of thinking about as I wrote my, my paper was that I think through the MTHI we hear a lot of sort of hype about Scandinavia and Finland and all this kind of stuff. So this is how they do it there. But yet we still tend to, we don't tend to replicate or as much as I've read anyway, um, in EAR or that perspective, we don't tend to um, tap into any of those ideas that happen there. And I do understand that Australia is, or I guess like Finland, for example, is like totally different context than Australia. But at the same time, so is the US. So it's sort of like I, I at the end of my paper, I sort of realised that Australia is a really unique context and it's so different to the UK and the US in that it's so, so much more new than than those places. And we do sort of have this opportunity to turn our, change our path and not follow that. So yeah, I guess I was sort of wondering if there's sort of like a way or that that's something it's more just um, in my head, but the way that we can kind of combine the the best, which is said to be in Finland maybe that's another myth that's in that book but um that a way that we can sort of apply it to our well you just go back a few steps Sorry. no 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 I'm, I'm answering your question it's very very good you go back to 2000 where the first PISA results came out a couple of things happened first thing Finland was enormously surprised at their results um people like Parsi Salberg they were already making up excuses why they hadn't done well now when you look at Finland at the time very homogeneous population Teachers were highly educated, they all had to have master's degrees. Very hard to get in. Only 10% of people who applied for teaching got into it. But there are other things that they, they weren't doing too. They, they weren't big on testing. They weren't big on getting kids into school early or having kids stay in the hours that we do. A lot of them were running on half days, as, as Germany was. But the thing was, in, in 2000, when all this international stuff came out, we were up, as Australia, we were up in the top. We're in the top eight on most things, literacy and numeracy and so on. Now, we have steadily gone down. Now, Partly, it's due to the sort of forces I'm talking about here, the deregulation, the dismantling of public ed education and so on. We had a much better system of funding education. Post-World post War II, we believed in education for the social, personal, economic prosperity of the country. And we invested in things like science blocks, and laboratories and libraries and, and having more kids go to school for longer and all that sort of stuff. We've been stripping the resources out of education compared with other countries measured by things like percentage of GDP for the last 20 years, 25 years. Chickens are coming home to roost. We're not getting the teachers where we need them, the country areas, regional areas. We have severe shortages of maths and science and languages and technology teachers in secondary. And we also had a situation where we let the salaries decline dramatically in real terms to the extent that we can't catch up to where they should have been. Just too much now. Basically, in the 1970s, the teacher's salary was right up there. It was equivalent. These to be comparisons with benchmarks like backbencher in parliament, deputy principal, high school, lecturer, university, and so forth. 
probably about 25% in real terms since that period. Take that back because it's the biggest occupation in Australia. One in 30 members of the workforce is a teacher. So getting back to the copying thing, you've got to be very selective about what you look because some of the things may be attractive and some of them not. Like If you look at Germany, for example, Germany had Pisa shock in 2000, but they've steadily increased and improved since then. Now, some of the things that Germany's got, we may not want to have. They've got the highest rate of grade repetition in Europe. 20% of kids in Germany repeat a year. They've got the highest percentage of kids in special schools. They've got tracking from the age of 10, grade 4, into the three main stratifications of high school, which determines what you can do for the rest of your life. But they've got other things as well. Highly trained teachers, they value training, they value education and so on. So you've got to look at that whole picture because sometimes there's these countervailing forces. Now, if you looked at Shanghai, for example, Beijing, you know, the Chinese examples, we don't want to copy that stuff. You've noticed in the last PISA, by the way, a couple of things. Finland's gone right down, and it's mainly because now they've got to adjust to the, the fact that they're not a homogeneous population anymore. They've got a lot of refugees. That's playing out. But also, they've lost, they've lost a bit of confidence. They've been copying other people as well. Now, in the case of China, uh, or it was Beijing and, and Shanghai, Shanghai in particular, that's a bit like saying, well, Canberra, ACT, represents Australia. Well, it doesn't. It's very middle class and high income and all that sort of stuff. But they also the Chinese gamed it. I mean, they made sure that certain kids didn't come along and do the test. It was high status. Uh, kids were doing 75 hours a week. 15-year-olds were doing 75 hours a week of schooling, training, uh, special tutoring, all that sort of stuff. Rote learning, not much in the way of uh, discovery learning, if you like, or encouraging people to be critical thinkers or anything else. So you can't just say, we're going to copy them or we're going to copy them because in actual fact, it does have to fit into our context. But also some of the things they're doing actually working against uh, what we'd like to achieve. So we have done a lot of copying, um, but not so much, I don't think, in the pedagogic line as much as the deregulation line. But getting back to the pedagogic stuff, yes, we have copied an awful lot of the fads and fashions around things like learning styles and totally student-centred learning, discovery learning and so on like that. And we've copied those from overseas. So we've been copying, but in some cases we've been copying the wrong things. Hmm. I'm curious to pick up on one thing you said there. Do you have a question? I was curious to pick up on one thing, which was about um, Shanghai yeah. and Beijing. And you mentioned not a lot of kind of critical thinking and more rote. But my understanding was PISA was really meant to test fundamentally science inquiry skills. And I actually had a look at some of the questions. They were quite challenging. They did mm. take quite complex thinking and problem solving. So, yeah, what, what well, did you say to that? Yes, um, through rote learning and that sort of pressure, you can get people to give you the right answers right here and right now. But there's no guarantee that in two or three years' time, they're actually going to be able to adapt. I mean, for all its faults, if you look at all the where the patents come from in the world, a great deal of them come from America. For all of the problems with education, how it's been dismantled and stratified and everything else, very few patents in the world come out of China. Mm. Yes, please do. The truth is that there's actually a fairly not negative, co strong negative correlation between PISA ranking and measures of creativity. In like Jim as an example. Yeah, yeah Jim as an example. So you can get people to get good, good results if you push and push and push and push and push. But what happens after that? Well, we see that, we see that in schooling. And the way VCE and HSC and so on set up, there are kids who get pushed by parents and maybe push themselves and get pushed by their teachers. And, and then when they get to university, their performance falls off because they've been very dependent learners. It's not uncommon. It's interesting because we, at this time of year, we've got all this stuff about you know, which schools are top the VCE and so on. 
But all the research tells us that the differences between government, non-government schools and everything else washes out within 12 months. Once kids, once it's a level playing field, it washes out. Cool. Whilst we're on the topic of kind of picking up ideas and, and innovation, that kind of thing, I was, I'm keen to pass to Anthony and he had a bit of a question about innovation in private sector. Mm. So one of, one of the thoughts I was having as I was reading the article was, I guess, opportunities for innovation, as Ollie said. And I've done a little bit of reading on social entrepreneurship. And so one of the things I was thinking, well, if you can change the motives of the leaders in the education sector to be more holistic in their approach of student welfare, as well as academic outcomes, is entrepreneurship an opportunity for the future and turning schools into sort of social enterprises? I think inherent in all of that is what do we want schools to be and what do we want schools to do? Now, there are some people who will tell you, here's a list of 21st century skills that kids need. You know, no one's ever going to have the same job for more than five minutes. We're all going to change our jobs 95 times in our lives and so forth. And we're going to have automation and everything else. So... There's a certain line there that some people take and it gets itself into the curriculum and everything else. I mean, why are we making kids in primary school learn coding? Can anyone tell me why? Are we going to need that? But that's, it's in the curriculum now, right? So people have been convinced. So I think there's a more fundamental question about what's the purpose of schooling. And if you go back to things like the Melbourne Declaration, you see it's, you know, there's academic, there's personal, there's social outcomes of schooling. So when we're not sure of that, then we get all this other stuff happening. And people like Ministers for Education and so on get convinced that every kid who comes out of school has got to be an entrepreneur. You know, they've got to start their own business, they've got to be creative and everything else. Well, no, that's not the way the world works. Some will be. Some will be in spite of their schooling, maybe, um, and some because of it. But part cargo cult, it's part ideology, it's part wishful thinking, it's part, it's part fantasy. But I think at the moment we are very unsure. I mean, one of the things we see is how the social expectations that society itself can't or won't deal with are loaded onto schools. All the different programs, drugs to do with sex, to do with the environment, to do with bicycle safety, dog safety, you know, multiculturalism, pollution, anything. They're all quite worthy things. So they're being loaded onto schools at the same time as we want you to lift your performance in the basics in NAPLAN and so forth, as the same time as we want to achieve these social and personal outcomes too. So it becomes a bit untenable, but it also becomes very contradictory. So you've got this tension at the moment between the, you know, what I call the extras and the basics. So we do need some sort of rational discussion about what it is we're trying to do and what's the best way to do it. And one of the things that's happened, particularly in primary education over the last 20, 30 years, is we've got an overcrowded curriculum. So is there, is there potentially the argument is that these extras are also some of them, some of them are actually becoming now basics as well. And so there is that pressure on the system. Well, they're becoming, yeah, basic expectations they are. Yeah, for sure. From the um, public or from government or from... Oh, all around because, you know, the society itself, community itself can't... I mean, parents used to provide this, the community used to provide it, other people used to provide it. Uh, now it's, it's seemed to be an issue for schools to solve, whether it's drugs or homophobia or whatever it happens to be, all these things on their own, are, you know, they're worthy. It's when they all get loaded up and you've got a teacher who's a, trying to cope with all this. They're trying to be a counsellor. They're trying to be a, a careers advisor. They're trying to teach the basics and they're trying to deal with kids who've come from horrendous uh, home backgrounds in some cases who go, come to school dirty, hungry, frightened. So, you know, it's, it's got to the point where I think some rationalisation is needed. But at the same time, we've got to say to ourselves, if we really want schools to solve all these problems, we better put the right people in there to do it, to help and work with teachers. Because 
if you just look at, say, the Indigenous community in Australia, a, a community there, it's not just a matter of getting the kids to go to school. There's issues around employment. There's issues around health and food and self-esteem and worth and alcohol and too much time on your hands and feeling an outcast and the fact that English is your third language and you can just go on and on and on. So a one-shot wonder is not going to solve any of that. So you, it's, it's really looking at the total picture. And I don't think, I don't think we know. But in terms of the whole entrepreneurship, if you want to see what that looks like, may I suggest you go to Ho Chi Minh City, where most of the population aren't in any kind of formal employment and are all making a living scratching away at something. That If you want to see what that kind of entrepreneur, you go there, you have a look at that. And the thing is that subsistence, whatever, has some charm, but the sort of security or whatever you want to call it for working in a big enterprise where you so much is taken care of for you and you're not going to fall off the edge of a cliff because something goes wrong at the wrong time you know there's a lot of charm for that you know i spent a lot of time looking at what people were up to in ho chi minh city with their little tiny businesses making little tiny bits of money and there's a you know there's a something i've been reading about recently called the bad break test what happens to somebody that suffers a bad break of some sort you know, they get sick or a relative gets into trouble and they've got to take the relative in and look after the relative, otherwise the person's on the street. All the kind of stuff that can go wrong in people's lives. And if you've got a whole lot of people with little tiny enterprises all, you know, scratching away, trying to make a living, what happens if they have a bad... Because they will have bad breaks. Everybody has bad breaks. And what is society going to do to protect them from the consequence that life happens. So you're talking about the bad breaks test literally as a test for society. Yeah, what is, you know, what does society do to look after citizens when life happens? Mm. I'm not going to use the SH word in mixed society. But what happens to people when when life happens? Mm. There's also things like economic change and so forth. And um, if you look what's happening in rural Australia, the family farm is gone, the small business is gone, but yet the local abattoir has been sold to someone from overseas. The railway line has and everything else. Things have been mechanised and all those sorts of things. So that heart's been stripped out of that to some degree. Now, I'm not sure there are jobs for people to go to as a result of that. But what tends to happen is younger people will gravitate towards the cities because that's where the opportunities are and everything else. So you, you, you do get this thing set up where basically, you know, we've literally dug up and cut down and sold overseas you know, a lot of things that, you know, would have provided employment and, and a sense of worth and all those sort of things in the past. So, you know, getting people involved in, in worthy social activities and so on, yeah, very important, and, and, and to stand up to some of the stuff that's happening. But in the short term, I'm not sure it's going to employ them. So we've got a lot of social change, a lot of economic change and so on. I don't think we've been terribly good at adjusting to it. I mean, we've wiped out our car industry. Now, there are, there are economic arguments why that should be the case. We're in a globalised economy and we were paying too much for cars and we had things like tariffs and taxes and so on. But all those people in Geelong who've lost their jobs, what happens to them? And this is kind of paralleled by what what happens in the US and I guess a lot of the reason why Trump was so successful with these kind of protectionist uh, views and approaches. Well, while, we're, while we're big picture, uh, I thought I'd follow up on, on something you were talking about there and, and ask you the question. Uh, what is the role of, of schooling? Yeah, well, I think there are 
levels. I mean, the first level is to give people an opportunity to have good life and to overcome disadvantage because education is the best means we have of overcoming disadvantage. We won't overcome it completely, but it opens the doors of opportunity. So having a fair and open, reasonably well-resourced, effective, particularly public education system, I think is, is vital for that individual prosperity, if you like. We know from the big epidemiological studies and so on that every year we keep people involved in educational training pays off. It pays off considerably in terms of things like life expectancy and social cohesion, um, yeah, all that stuff. There are states in America that determine how many prison beds they're going to need on the basis of the high school dropout rate. It's interesting because in New Zealand, the guy who's now become uh, the Prime Minister, English, was actually uh, convinced by a number of people that basically it was costing New Zealand an enormous amount of money to go down the track they were going with education because it was failing so many people, particularly the Maori people, but other people as well. And that there was actually an economic benefit to be had from keeping people in school and giving them a good education and so on. I did all the sums and crunch and everything else. And New Zealand turned fundamentally and said, okay, now we're going to do this for the benefit of the individuals, the society, the economy. And they have, and they've turned it around. Uh, but that was recognition of the importance of education. Now, there are other, other things that are important with it as well. But I think, you know, just the notion of a reasonably equal society where people can have reasonable aspirations and not be cut off. So really the solution then still comes back to government and them taking some sort of responsibility for education and having, and I don't know how, but some sort of consistency, in which case is Gonski a lost opportunity? Yeah, well, we just look at fair and equitable funding. If we look at that now, we have not had that for a long, long time. And in days gone by, we had a situation where public schools were funded by the public purse and people who wanted to send their kids to a private school made their own arrangements. Now, we had a whole state aid thing that came out in the 50s and 60s and so on, and we started funding non-government schools, many of whom were quite wealthy and could charge fees. Now, you also had your poor Catholic parish schools, which were very similar in a lot of ways to the government system. So we've had inequities there, but it's become a vote issue. And any time we have a discussion about how can we more equitably fund education, how can we make it fairer for people, because these schools are getting a large proportion of their money from the public purse, the non-government schools. How can we make it fairer? Politicians are forced to make a promise that no school will be better off under the new arrangements. So that stymies you because what it means is that you tend to reinforce inequities that are already there. Now, the thing about Gonski was, Gonski was always meant to be over five or six years, and it really would address the issue of inequity in the last couple of years because you've got to sort of creep up on it. If you're not going to take money off schools, which is, you know, some of them are overfunded, then what you'd have to do is build up the government side, the poor school side, on a needs basis. Now, that was the plan with Gonski, and that was really going to happen in the last couple of years, but basically the last couple of years haven't happened. Now, Peter Goss from the Grattan Institute came out with uh, a model a couple of weeks ago, which is actually a very good model, um, but it's a very brave model because what it does say is that you know, we, we know schools are overfunded, some schools are grossly underfunded, and we are going to take money off them to redistribute the money more fairly. So you know, it it's, looks like a workable solution. But the thing about Gonski is that, um, you know, it's the old story about the, the person who gets lost in the bush and says to one of the local yokels, you know, how do I get to the capital city from here? And the local 
yokel scratches his head and says after five minutes, well, if I was going to the capital city, I wouldn't be leaving from here. And if you're designing a, a fair and equitable education system, funding system, you wouldn't be starting from where we are because there's so many entrenched inequities in there. And the thing is that any politician, any political party that tries to do something about it, they will be signing their death warrant. They will get voted out of office. So where do we start? Is it uh, pre-teacher education? Yeah, well, that's been conveniently made the, the whipping boy and everything else. A couple of things. I think the profession itself <coughs> needs to find a voice. And I'm not just talking about an industrial voice, but a professional voice. We've always had the industrial voice through the union, and they've performed a function. But we need a professional voice uh, and to counter some of this stuff. We also need, I think, something of a pause in terms of this flip-flopping from one thing to another. I mean, one of the things, if you talk to you know, senior people in schools, they're suffering change fatigue, they're suffering administration fatigue, accountability fatigue, all these things that are stopping them doing their core business, which is teaching and learning. So we've got to find a way to ease some of that administrative accountability burden. Because the other thing we tend to do is we make rules and regulations for the bottom 5% all the time. Now, there's quite a number of schools, government, non-government, that are sailing along very, very nicely. They're doing well, they're innovative, they're trying new things, they're evidence-based. Leave them alone. Light touch. There's a group of schools below that that need some assistance and help, and we can provide that, and PD and leadership preparation and so on. A, A slightly more intrusive touch with some more accountabilities maybe. And then there's a group at the bottom who basically, for whatever reasons, are sinking. They're failing. They're not performing. They're failing their kids. They're failing their communities. Teachers aren't happy. You know, all those sorts of things. Now, do you just let them run or do you do something about it? Now, I've had this discussion with the Minister in Victoria and the Minister in New South Wales too. At what point do you intervene in that and what form does the intervention take? And it's a big question. We had principals out here from Berlin last week, or from, from Germany last week. And in Berlin, they made a decision to basically designate schools, turnaround schools, and say, well, okay, you're not doing well, your results are well below what we expect, and we're going to work quite closely with you to lift things up. So it was more direct intervention. The American model is to close the school down, get rid of all the staff, the principal, the teachers, rename it, reopen it, sell it off to private industry, and hope that it's going to improve. So, you know, there are different approaches to all of this. One of the big things that I have seen increasingly is increased variation in the system. So there's variation in funding. There's variation in the quality of teacher education courses. There's variation in teacher quality within schools. There's variation in leadership in schools. Uh, There's variation in the provision of professional learning, which is one of the biggest levers we've got to enable people to actually use things like the National, the Australian Professional Standards for Teachers in a productive way. And one of the problems we've got in this country is that, like Germany, constitutionally, education is a state of territory responsibility. So on the one hand, you've got the federal government cracking the whip and they provide a lot of the funding directly and indirectly. Then you've got the states and territories all jostling around and just getting some agreement that you were talking about before is actually quite difficult. We've done it with national curriculum, national testing, national standards and so forth. But it's a real battle. But again, what we're seeing is we've got world's best practice in some schools and some teachers and some systems and everything else. But we've also got world's worst practice and the gap's getting wider. So a lot of people point to the fact that the performance, the top's going down, but it's going down all over the place. And if you look at the bottom, for example, if you look at Indigenous kids, the latest uh, TIMS and PISA and NAPLAN results, Indigenous kids were in the last round in 2012, PISA, they were two and a half years behind the average for the general population. They're now three years behind. So variation... Is a, is a big issue. And 
supporting the schools and the teachers and the leaders to be more effective is a big issue. You can't just expect people to improve by waving a big stick at them. And I think, you know, everybody points to the fact that spending's gone up and results have gone down. Well, if, if that is the case and there is that negative correlation, well, then you can improve the standard tomorrow by cutting funding and it'll go back up again. It's like, it's a ridiculous argument. And what, one of the things that Gonski was about was actually targeting your spending to where it has most impact. And that includes things like having a basic standard of infrastructure in every school, having professional development for teachers, having leadership preparation, assisting people with additional staff to deal with some of the social expectations on schools. Now, the things we know have great impact. When the global financial crisis was on, you know, we had the building education revolution and the, the, um, the whole business that went with that, which Tony Abbott derided as school halls. Well, it was more than that. It was a stimulus for the economy and it was very successful. We came out of the, the, um, the global financial crisis much better shape than everybody else. But the thing was, we spent initially 14.7 and it's up to over 18 billion now on that school building program. And a lot of the money was wasted. Uh, there's no doubt about that. People took advantage of it. But at the same time, we had a four-year government program to improve the quality of teaching, which was funded at 550,000 million, sorry, 550 million, with 50 million of that being for leadership preparation. I would have liked to have seen them take one billion out of the bucket that was for the BER and put it into that professional development bucket. It would have made an enormous difference. When I worked at ACR, I actually analysed the data on the building education revolution, and they loved it. The schools loved it. You know, we got this, we got this. We would never have had any of that. You know, little schools out in the bush, they got such benefit from it. They loved it. Not, not questioning that at all. They would never have got those facilities otherwise. And it did stimulate the economy and it did save the Australian economy. It's just a matter of priorities, though, because a lot of very well-endowed schools spent their money on a brand-new sandstone fence or something, you know. So it's, it's putting the money where it has the most impact. The BER made, made a good sense at the time, but... Things like, for example, how do you support those teachers in those isolated country schools where they're too far away in some cases to get professional development, they're inexperienced, they haven't got good support staff in the school, they've got kids with low expectations because there's no jobs and so on and so on. So, I mean, that's what Gonski was really trying to say, not just spend more money, but target the spending. For the next question, I'm just noticing the energy in the room and that we've been talking for 15 minutes. So let's have a brain break. If everyone, if everyone wants to stand up. Um, that was actually a thing I got off Tom Brunzel from Positive Psych. He was giving a, an ACE presentation, actually, and he, he noticed everyone's energy was a bit low, so he did a couple of brain breaks, and they were really good. So tying, this, tying that back to kind of the discussion we were having about curriculum earlier, um, we were talking about what are the basics, what should schools do. We've, we've talked about education as a great leveller. What does that mean for curriculum? What does that mean in the classroom? Well, hopefully we've got a curriculum that enables people to experience success. That's one of the Melbourne goals. They become successful learners. doesn't mean they get 99.95, but it means they experience success, they get feedback and so on. I think it's, it's a curriculum that's engaging, but it's not just based purely on what people think is interesting. I mean, there's a lot of this giving students control over their learning, for example, so it have very low, low effect size. So I think it's got to be an ambitious curriculum. I think it's got to be a connected curriculum that connects with the real world and people's lives and so forth. Um, one of the problems that we've seen, we've seen it in Victoria, we've seen it in New South Wales, we've seen it with the National Curriculum, is things like we need more science. So we overload the content in year 11 and 12, for example, which just has a negative effect. So I think it's got to be a, a coherent curriculum. I think it's got to be connected 
if it's not, then it, you know, you've just got collections of facts and activities and stuff that doesn't actually contribute to anything that's happening in people's heads. We've got a national curriculum. I think we need a lot more support to help people develop that. We've been through various ways. We had a very prescriptive curriculum up until the sort of mid-60s, 1970s, where you could walk into any classroom in the state and you knew what they would they'd be doing. And it was all, it was a white bread Anglo curriculum and um, lots of testing and everything else. We went and completely threw the baby in the bathwater out the window with school-based curriculum development in some cases. And people weren't equipped to do that. So basically it meant, you know, choose your own adventure, do whatever you like. And then we've had a situation where we've, the pendulum swung back a little bit. So Look, there's a thing that runs all through all of this, and this is educators being really informed. Something that I talk about is people being critical consumers of research and understanding policy and having your say, having your say in your school, having your say in the community and the profession and so forth. That's all part of it because if we don't say anything, if we don't stand up for the things that we believe and the things we're trying to achieve and the things that we're doing and everything else and counter some of what's happening, we'll be done over and we will be told as a lot of teachers in America are, this is, this is your textbook from you know, Pearson, this is the CD or whatever it happens to be, this is the online thing you have to do, and you'll have no discretion whatsoever. And it'll all be you know, rote learning and you know, pumping people full of information and so on. So I think one of the things going through all of this, and it's what we try and do with some of the courses here, is you know, that evidence-based approach, that questioning approach. And it's difficult when you're a beginning teacher, but actually saying, you know, why are we doing this and is there a better way and let's try it. I mean, empowering people is really important. And what we've seen from all the imposed educational changes, people have been disempowered. They've just been you know, passive, basically, in the face of this because they didn't know what else they could do. It was just all dumped on them and everything else. And one of the things we've found with things like our network of schools and the master's program that we run, I run in instructional leadership, the stuff we do through the Basto Institute is it's about empowering people with knowledge and letting them experience success and helping them understand their context and planning interventions and putting them into place and seeing how they're going and experiencing success and, and, and energising people again, getting people empowered. Now, the one cautionary note for that is we've seen some stunning success with the network of schools and, and various other initiatives, but it doesn't touch every school. So you've got those schools that are absolutely flying. I mean, the Cam Briar stuff that was on the ABC is one of our network schools. That's, it, it's, in some ways, it's typical. But we've got all sorts of different ones. But that's a school that decided as a group of people, collegially, collaboratively, we are going to do things differently, maybe. We're going to have a concerted, consistent approach across the school. We're going to be evidence-based. We're going to believe that every child can learn and experience success and that every teacher can learn. And these are platitudes and these are words, but in actual fact, you know, these things have been enacted. So you're seeing that at the same time as you're seeing some other ones that are right down here. So... Involvement and engagement, being a critical consumer of research, um, being active in your profession, being proud of your profession. Don't do the, some of the things that, that happen, which we've seen over many years, where teachers say to their kids, particularly in the upper years of high school, what do you want to be a teacher for? You're going to get 95 or 94 or something like that, not promoting the next generation of, of people to be teachers and conveying a negative message by being you know, whinging and moaning and being unhappy and unfulfilled and all that sort of stuff. So I think there's a role modeling thing that's really quite important as well. Having done the MTeach program primary, what really amazed me is the access to research papers to actually inform my teaching or our teaching. And it is all evidence-based and you can see what the students do, say, make or write. However, having had three placements, 
uh, mentors in those three placements say, well, when you come out to the industry, you don't have access to all the stuff. So in, in terms of being equalizer for education, like, I mean, education being equalizer for everyone, how, I guess, you know, we are proposing, mm. whether it's government or whether it's even school themselves or even university, giving access to teachers to all these research uh, data that's available for them to be able to say, well, yes, as a whole school approach, we want to do stuff, whether it's teaching spelling or, you know, the pedagogy to teach spelling or the pedagogy to teach reading, you know, in, in that aspect. Okay, a couple of things. The best schools, the best teachers aren't satisfied with what they know and they keep on learning. And they learn in little groups like this. They learn collaboratively in their, in their staff room or their year level or whatever. And the best school leaders know the importance of professional learning. Professional learning's got a very large effect size on student learning. We know that. It's over 0.8. Okay, so what we see in those best schools is they're continually reading and planning, but it's not a shotgun approach. Where it's done badly is you're in a school and there's a staff meeting and the principal throws another new paper at you. And then there's another one the week after that and the week after that, and there's no coherence. What the best schools do is they spend a lot of time thinking about the, the coming 12 months and even the coming years. What are our priorities? What are the things we're going to concentrate on? And then we do the reading around that and we, we send people away and we have people come in and it's collaborative work with a purpose. And that's what we, we try and do. So with the network of schools, they focus on a particular thing, which might be literacy, it might be numeracy, and they make that a priority. Now, the thing is, you can do 17 things badly or you can do one thing well. If you can do one thing well, you get some spin-off effects from that. And teachers get empowered and they say, you know, that was successful, that was good, that was enjoyable. I mean, one of the things that i found is that there are still a lot of people who treat their classroom like a man cave. You know, they shut the door, they put the piece of paper over the window. I'm a professional, I've been teaching 25 years, I get good results, you can't tell me anything. Those people, when they've been brought out of that cave into the sunlight and work with other people collaboratively and so on, get energised, re-energised. And, and often one of the things I'll say to them is, yeah, would you go back to what you were doing before? And the answer is no. But there's no doubt there's a prevailing culture that can be very negative. I mean, it's the classic, old, the classic thing that people come up with. Forget everything you've learned at university. This is how we do it here. Or you make a, a little suggestion and they say, oh, we tried that in 1975 and it didn't work. Or you hear that one, which is really damning. This is a working class school in a working class area. Don't expect too much and you won't be disappointed. So one of the things there is to hold to your own standards, which need to be high standards. And there's a bit of a saying too, which I use a bit, but when you're a member of a school community and you walk through that school and you see something and you decide not to do anything about it, you've set the standard. So it's a matter of having those expectations clearly. And the expectations for kids that are going to work hard, do well, and that effort brings reward and all those basic things. Because there's a fair bit of hopelessness there as well. And so if you can, it's very hard to do it on your own, but if you've got good leaders, if you've got other teachers you can work with collaboratively, the other part of that is that it's fun working with people on those sorts of projects and getting some success. It's, it's you know, rewarding. And, you know, we know from all the work we did on teacher satisfaction and so on, it's not surprising that, you know, one of the best things that can happen to you as a teacher is that a kid gets it and they suddenly, you know, they, they turn around, they get some confidence, they start to do their work and, you know, you've got a relationship that's building and all those sorts of things. So one of the things I don't want to do with this paper is depress everybody. It's a warning, okay? It's a warning about the things that are happening now. In fact, I've described it elsewhere as being like a tsunami. And the thing about a tsunami is you don't notice it's there until it's whacked you on the head, you know? It's long waves. These are long waves that are coming across the Pacific and, and from elsewhere. And unless we're going to do something about them, we're not going to be happy with what happens. And you will find that you're, you know, there's a number of the big 
oversees for-profit schools. They're not allowed in Australia yet because under our constitution, all schools are non-profit and non-government schools are technically charities. They're not supposed to make profits. But there are some big chains who are just waiting for the opportunity to get into Australia to run for-profit schools. And the, and the way they make their money, they cut costs and they increase revenue. The basics of economics, how do they cut costs? By hiring uh, lesser trained teachers, untrained teachers, by not having the facilities like counsellors and heads of departments having a very lean structure, by charging fees that are in some cases excessive, by getting government handouts on top of that. You know, they're just waiting for that opportunity. And once that happens, and if you happen to be working in one of those schools, well, you know, bad luck. It's an unpleasant environment. I went to one of the um, charter schools in California, and they're exempt from building regulations. They don't actually have to have a playground or anything else. They've got special dispensation. So this is in an old office building type thing. If the kids want to play sport, they do it at half past nine in the evening, and they, they hire facilities from another school. 75 kids in a class studying the SAT, Scholastic Aptitude Test, which is the entrance test for university entrance from the age of 14 and they, they get tested in all the areas every four weeks test 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 and the ones who fail they don't go past that semester they go they leave so that school can say at the end of the day 75 percent of our kids went to college so you know that's the sort of thing that happens when you let the free market into schools and run them as businesses see what happens to hospitals the trains prisons right all those things that used to be owned by the people uh, once they get privatized the standard tends to go down the cost tends to go up and what we've seen from the UK and the US and Sweden and other places that have gone down this road, their results have gone right down. So it's a wake-up call, it's a warning. It's saying to the profession, basically towards the end of it, get mobilised, have your say, stand up. And there's this thing, there is this thing about acting or thinking globally and acting locally. Yes, think about what's happening globally, but in your own school, do as much as you possibly can to do the right thing, to promote it, you know, to have a good environment for the kids, all that sort of stuff. There's a there's an organisation called PDK in the uh, Piedelta Cabin, which is they have a journal, right? and they've been doing the same survey now for something like 39 years. I think they're up to 39. Every year they ask the American public their opinions on schooling, and it normally comes out around about June, July. And every time they've run this survey for the last 39 years, they get the same results on a couple of questions. What do you think about American public education generally? It's hopeless. Teachers don't care. Um, violent, dangerous, low standard, blah blah. What do you know? What do you think about your local public school? Oh, it's really good. The teachers try. They're doing good stuff. There's this gap in perception between the general and the local. So you might be able to do much about the general, but you can do a lot about the local. You've spoken a couple of times about sort of teachers driving their own professionalism and developing their own voice. What are your suggestions for? as sort of local in schools at the coalface teachers how we can try to influence some of those policies government decisions and and build that professional voice very good question i would have liked for example to see the teachers in australia much more involved with things like using the teaching standards professional teaching standards and actually doing things like accrediting teachers or accrediting courses and, and certifying teachers against those but it wasn't given to the profession the psychologists have got it, the engineers have got it, the doctors have got it, the various surgeons have got it. We don't have that. So we've been kept out of that. There are existing professional associations, of which ACE is one, but there are others. You know, there are primary English teachers associations and so on. Getting involved in those professional associations is one way to do it. Working well with your community to actually publicise the good things you're doing uh, is one way to do it. 
productive partnerships is another thing. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of people forming their own networks, uh, collaboration between staff, sharing professional learning and so on. The networks are about that. Um, rather, and often the school down the road is your competitor, so you don't want to work too closely with them, but you're quite happy to work with somebody else. But just getting active professionally. You know, we've had this, this thing for as long as I've been involved. Are we a profession or are we some sort of craft or job or occupation or something? And unfortunately, too often, we shoot ourselves in the foot or whatever by acting unprofessionally. And by that I mean not really standing up for some of the things that we think are important, really being serious about accountability. I think the unions have had a very important part to play, but they are seen as industrial organisations, not professional ones. And one of the mistakes or one of the issues with the union was for a long, long time, their view was all teachers are equally good. Now, of course, we know that's not the case. And, and there's been some shift in that so that they are recognising the fact that we do have to have processes to deal with underperforming teachers. But we also need to, and this is the other one they find really hard, we also need to have processes that will help to reward and recognise very able teachers. So they've had problems with both of those things over time. You know, getting involved in things like the, the professional learning, the highly accomplished and lead level certification and supporting each other to get those sorts of things. You know, there's, there's a whole range of stuff. It's not one thing, but there's a whole range of things that are under the, the business of empowerment, involvement, engagement, professionalism. One of your biggest assets is your local community. Some people... Some people treat their local community as the enemy and some people really work very, very hard because it's a diverse community. There are different groups there. It's easy to work with a, a few taken parents, but we're talking really engaging with it. And often we think, well, to do that, they've got to come to the school. The best schools take the school to the community. It sounds trite, but it's true. They find ways to engage in the community. So they have the kids doing stuff like going to the local old people's home and reading to people and stuff like that, you know. But be sure of one thing. If, you don't, if we don't say things that we think are important to be said and if we don't do things that we think are important to be done it will be done to us and it won't be pleasant that's the experience from overseas uh just a question in relation to you mentioned the say the top 10 percent of schools that are doing things right they can be autonomous and they work well together they work with the communities and then the 90 percent schools that are approaching that or they're not near that uh, within those schools you might have some very talented people who are broad thinkers and they have the potential to make a difference but they're a small part of that school now if those schools need outside assistance uh, these people within those schools might be skeptical to that and they might think oh you know I'm, I'm doing the best I can but now I have to do it this and this way and if that school is a bit sh on shaky ground what can we do to sort of persuade these talented people within these organizations to stay and help because if there's purges of those kind of people, then you end up with that American situation where they, they just have to close the school because it's collapsed in on itself. And there's a lot of politics within schools where someone might have the potential, but they're eaten up by other people that don't like that. We, we, a couple of things. Well, we know that teacher quality varies more within schools than between schools. Leadership's got a really key role to play here. School leaders who are true instructional leaders who understand teaching and learning, who can spot that talent, encourage it, they can build a critical mass to work on particular projects. You can't lead on your own. By definition, you're not a leader if you're just on your own, taking a walk somewhere. So um, what we see is the best leaders see themselves as instructional leaders. They're getting that support. They're working with some key people. In some cases where the leadership is lacking, people are organising themselves into small groups. 
it might be based upon a faculty or a year level or just people who've got an interest in things like ICT across the curriculum or assessment or something like that. Yeah, the danger is that people will leave because they're coming up against that prevailing brick wall. It's a danger and some people will decide to do that. On the other hand, what you see is that when schools start to move, there are some people who've been there who decide to move because they don't like the way it's going. They don't like the fact there might be more accountability for what they're doing. And when I say accountability, I don't mean filling out forms. I mean being able to stand up and justify what you're doing and saying, this is our approach and this is why we do it and this is how we know it works and all those sorts of things. You know, it's the old organisational behaviour stuff. It's one of the reasons why now that this state in particular but others are investing so much in leadership preparation. Certainly we are. Having those leaders who can actually work with people, motivate, um, assist them, having some small wins, all that sort of stuff. But yep, um, you'll come up against pockets. Uh, you'll come up against toxic cultures. Everyone's heard of Tom Bennett? Yeah, okay. Tom Bennett will be in Melbourne next year. And one of the things that the research ed organisation does that Tom runs is support what he calls research leaders in, in schools. Now, I'm really, really interested in that idea, though I can't see at this point exactly how would we make it happen. That doesn't mean I'm sceptical. I just haven't got a plan in my head. But certainly... It would be very interesting if you guys, but and you're all on the Facebook group, if there was some way to think about how to support people in schools to be those research leaders that hopefully could influence the culture of the school. But the mere fact of being a network means that even if your school's giving you a pain in the neck, you've got people outside the fence who are on the same wavelength and who are supporting you. Now, I keep mentioning the conference. Tom Bennett will be doing a research ed thing at the conference here in Melbourne on the 3rd and 4th of July next year. If you are at all even remotely interested in seeing yourself in that role of being a research leader, then please do come to, to come along and hear about how it might work. As I said, I don't know how it's going to work yet. I just really want it to, to work. I do think, and I'm totally convinced of this, even more every day, professional learning is the key. And then the other big key is leadership. And leadership isn't just people in positions of authority. You're all leaders when you take a class, when you're on a committee, you take a sporting group, a music group, that's all leadership. Right? So it's leadership and it's professional learning. I don't think you can improve a school without professional learning. And the common feature that we see is people questioning, using the evidence they've already got, asking questions about, you know, why do we continually have this problem and we continually have the same response to this problem? Maybe there's other ways to do it and so on. Having those professional discussions Finding some space in the day to do that, if you can do it, um, is really quite important. The other thing that's come through as being really important is to periodically you know, revisit the narrative. Why are we doing this? What do we believe about the kids in this school? What do we believe about this community? What do we believe about the power of education? What do we believe about the purpose of education? And, and having that internal narrative, but also sharing it with your colleagues. You know, And it might be just a very basic thing that you keep reminding yourself of every student can learn with the right support and you keep on saying it and you keep on doing it you know so i think that professional reading questioning learning trying stuff evaluating is the key to all of this at a time when you're still feeling disempowered maybe and things are still being dumped on top of you that you really don't want to do and, and all of that but the thing i would say about it if you can get that sort of thing happening that sort of culture happening it's actually very rewarding and enjoyable. Thanks, Steve. That's a perfect segue into the final question, or the second last question I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, professional learning at the individual level is essentially what, what you put into your brain. You've obviously had many, many years of experience in the education sector, and we're all, you know, fledglings in our careers and trying to build up our knowledge and our, our background understanding of education. What is your information diet? 
when it comes to education and what are some kind of key sources of information you'd suggest we kind of tap into? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's, it's, the, it's the research that, that I've been doing, but it's also the, the talking, the discussion, the thinking, colleagues and so on over time that helps build up that sort of theoretical sensitivity or whatever you want to call it. Um, so it's experience, but it's informed experience. I mean, there's, there's a bit of a joke. Some people have 25 years experience and some people have the same year 25 times over that actually don't progress at all. So there's that. There's the judicious reading of things, the, the key things that come out. It's, it's having discussions about the stuff that comes out. What are the key things that come out? Well, so, there's there's so much things, there, well yeah, I mean, I, I, I tweet stuff and everything every day. And there might be an article, a new research report that's come out that might be of interest. Um, it might be a new approach to doing something. It might be some new discoveries in psychology or something, whatever it happens to be. So follow Steve, follow Steve Dinham on Twitter. No, well, you can. But um, that's part of it. It's just being aware and asking questions. And, and that's what the internet is such a great thing because, you know, you can get on reading lists and notification lists and, and so forth. And... Um, you know, what I tend to look for, though, is what's, what's the evidence base for this? Is it just somebody politizing? Is it somebody who's done a reasonable, you know, relevant research project that we can learn from? That, that's all part of it. But the other thing that I do, I spend a lot of time teaching people like aspiring leaders and uh, the various consultancies, the stuff we do around Australia and so on. So while we're doing that and we're having those discussions, I'm actually learning from them as well. And also being involved in some of the policy stuff. So it's just a sort of like it's sort of coming at you from all over. So what's the diet? I mean, it's it's pretty continuous, but um, I think there's a definite bias towards stuff that's got credibility. But there is that thing too that the more you know, the more you see. And, you know, as your expertise builds, you'll see more and you'll learn more because that's how it works. And it's kind of like a leap of faith or a journey into the unknown. You just get started you really don't know where you're going and you don't know where you're going to end up. But everything you encounter along the way will add value and will help you see and understand better. So there is no there is no formula for it. It's basically having what Scott Barry Kaufman calls a hungry mind. Best thing you can have is a hungry mind. If you can do it collaboratively, I think if you can do it collaboratively, there's so many more benefits. I mean, our, our view of professional learning a few years ago was it was something individuals did. And now, obviously, the, the notion of collabora uh, collaboration, learning community stuff, you know, these are both you know, trendy words, but it's true. You can have that collective wisdom which you can share with each other. I think sharing with each other is really important too. And and that, that means breaking down some of those barriers. So you know, not so having people inspect each other, but just, you know, come and watch me do some do this particular lesson and just, just give me some feedback on how I use questioning. You know, it's a focus stuff. Sorry, just um, can I just quickly ask, having just finished my master's thesis in the middle of the year, I think I was a little bit naive about how much I would be able to keep up with research and things like that once I worked in a school. And my thesis supervisor was really motivating in that she said, oh, so many people just disappear after uni and they sort of disappear into schools and they just stay there. So I was sort of determined not to be one of those people. And I've just found it incredibly hard. And now I've just become a bit depressed because I've realised not being attached to an institute, like a, a university anymore, just makes it so hard. And I don't have time to find readings and, and write things anymore. Um, and so I sort of had a discussion with my supervisor and sort of came to the conclusion that is it beneficial in a way, and you sort of touched on it before, just to actually just teach for, for a few years before you then do something more? Because I, I just don't, don't have the time or energy to do both. And I need money. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
I've been teaching for six years now and I think definitely the first sort of few years are just like, oh, my gosh, and you're in the thick of it. and But you come up for air eventually and you have more headspace and you start thinking and that hungry mind kicks back in and you start reading and researching and looking for the next step. And if you've got good professional discussions, you know, so when you, you have a staff meeting or something, there's, some, there's a bit of reading. If there are people on the staff that have got a similar interest, share stuff, you know, um, flick around some of the things that you're reading that are really good. So an exciting end to the podcast, we outstayed our welcome and got kicked out by security. One of the questions that I usually ask our guests at the end of the podcast is, do you have any calls to action? Is there any if it was, we need to be an evidence-based profession based upon what we know has the greatest impact on student learning and development, hence writing my book. So it's true, Steve's just released in 2016 a new book. It's called Leading, Learning and Teaching, and I really recommend people checking it out. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the ERRR podcast. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at www.ollilovell.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this week's episode, please write a review on iTunes to help more people to find us. Thank you to the Australian College of Educators for their support in bringing this episode of the ERRR podcast together. Thanks for your time. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.